This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Trump has rolled back Obama-era measures meant to combat climate change. What that may mean for Colorado coal country coming up. We will start with an issue, though, that the nation's second lady wants to bring attention to. The vice president's wife, Karen Pence, has chosen to use her new role to advocate for art therapy. Pence herself is a watercolorist who's been involved in this arena for years. Reaction from the art therapy community has been mixed to this announcement, as we'll hear. But we wanted to know more about how art is used to treat very serious problems, even addiction. Amanda Roachwhite leads the Art Therapy Association of Colorado. She practices at a psychiatric hospital. And Amanda, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Art therapy focuses on the visual arts, so painting, drawing, sculpture, and the like. It is different from music or dance therapy. Karen Pence said this is, quote, not arts and crafts. Is, is that a perception that you deal with? Yes, all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, how does it uh, differ from what people have in their minds? Yeah. So art therapy is a mental health profession in which we are trained with a master's degree. And it's similar to other counseling or therapy. However, with art therapy, it uses more of the art media and the creative process to actually um, help people restore functioning and have a personal sense of well-being. So we work in a lot of areas that other mental health professionals also work. Okay. What are some of those settings? So some of those settings might be like where I work, a psychiatric hospital. Um, they may also be a medical center. Um, we work with cancer patients a lot. Um, we also work in rehabilitation facilities, private practice, uh, forensic facilities, which include prisons or jails. Mm-hmm. Um, we may work in other mental health agencies, crisis centers, senior community, and other community-based centers. And the list goes on. Can you take me into a therapy session? Um, Describe what it would look like, what it would sound like, how the art connects to healing. Like, I wonder if it's literal. If you have suffered trauma, do you paint about the trauma? Or is it Is it not so literal? Sure. Um, Sometimes it's more literal and sometimes it's not. Sometimes art therapists will use certain directives to be able to gear a person in a certain direction. Like what? So, for example, with addiction, one thing may be like change stages of change in like motivational interviewing and having a person draw about where they're at with their addiction. So they might come up with a whole bunch of different ideas, but then we can hone in and narrow in and have them do like another image in response to the images that they've already created. What would that image be? So, uh, paint me a picture here. Sure. Um, so one example would be um, like if I were to ask somebody to draw their addiction as a monster, they might take it and draw it as a monster. And then we can look at it and talk about it. And it might actually give them words to help them describe what it's like to deal with addiction and what it's like to um, deal with all of the consequences that come along with that. So, for example, I worked at Summit County Jail, and I did a lot of projects there. And one thing you notice in addiction is that a lot of people are very um, – It's very hard for them to process addiction because they feel like they're a failure. So how do we um, recreate an ability to change and also give them the empowerment to do so? So that's kind of where the art comes in. You talked about this as being a profession that it's often – 
along with a master's degree. Mm-hmm. What research is there to back up that this is effective? Sure. So the Art Therapy Association, the American Art Therapy Association, actually has a journal. And there's a lot of art therapists who do research and publish within the journal. There's also a lot of books available about art therapy in different fields. So, for example, addiction or trauma or neuroscience. And there's also um, a lot of other journals that publish articles from different art therapists. And is art therapy ever the the driving therapy or is it always in, in conjunction with other modalities? No, a lot of times it is the driving therapy. So it depends on where people are working and what their focus is. But a lot of times it can be the focus because a lot of people have private practices. And when people have a calling to do art, they tend to express better through the arts. Um, So taking trauma, for example, um, National Geographic in 2015 had a cover that was based on a program that Melissa Walker did. And that was called How Art Heals the Wounds of War. And she also has a TED Talks available about it. But she had specifically art therapy as the um, practice. And what people would do there is they created masks. And the masks represented kind of how they felt on the inside about invisible wounds, things that they might go through that otherwise... Um, wouldn't necessarily come out in words. So it helps them to put words to an image or to create an image of something that they're trying to identify or express. Right. So if you have a block to verbalizing something, art can be the medium of expression. It's interesting that you bring up the military Mm -hmm. um, because uh, it, it appears in President Trump's budget that there might be a cut to or an elimination of the National Endowment for the Arts, Yes, for instance. Um, But there was a a piece recently about the fact that art therapy through the military, whose budget is expected to grow, um, might actually get a boost uh, because this is being deployed, if you will, with veterans. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to work with veterans? Um, I... I have some military clients at the hospital who are currently active military, not necessarily veterans. Um, I've definitely come across veterans while working at Summit County Jail um, and other programs that I've been involved with. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And um, we are talking about art therapy today. And the reason for that is that the second lady of the United States, that is Karen Pence, has decided to use her new role to advocate for art therapy. And um, uh, I'm joined by Amanda Rochwhite. She leads the Art Therapy Association of Colorado. Uh, and I, I'm curious how you feel about the second lady's decision to, to raise the profile of this profession. Um, I'll say that the National Association has said it was enthusiastic and would support her efforts. On the flip side, an art therapist in Chicago started a Facebook page called Art Therapists for Human Rights. It has just under a 1,000 members, and those members question Karen Pence's commitment to the rights of people uh, of color, the LGBT community, people with disabilities. What's your take on the decision? So as president of the Art Therapy Association of Colorado, I feel that it's important to have a conversation about all of these things because 
ultimately, art therapists are very concerned about their clients and the communities in which we work, and we want to do everything we can to support them. Um, I think one big thing is that this isn't the first time anything controversial has ever come up in art therapy. We constantly have dialogue and discussion. And I think ultimately, our goal is to really try and advocate for our clients in whatever way we can. All right. That, that sounds like a politically safe response there. Are, yeah. you, are you generally pleased that she is raising awareness about this? I have mixed feelings about it. So I definitely agree that she, by having her support it, we could bring education and awareness, which might create resources for people to have access to art therapy, art therapy services, insurance coverage. We might get more funding for research. But I also see the other end of it that there is some worry and concern about what the current administration is going to do for the clients and the communities that we work with and worried about them cutting services to those clients. What could the elimination of the National Endowment for the Arts mean for art therapy? Is there a strong relationship there? There is a very strong relationship. Um, the American Art Therapy Association and the National Endowment for the Arts do um, help each other out. And there are a lot of research projects and different community-based programs through art therapy that are funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. I just want to say that the uh, endowment announced that it would bring one of its national initiatives to Colorado, and this is in which art therapists work with veterans, as Mm -hmm. we mentioned, members of the military and their families. Uh, So soon those services in art therapy will be available at Fort Carson, outside of Colorado Springs. How did you get involved in this? In art therapy? Yeah. Yeah, I actually went to school for art, and I volunteered with a organization that worked with domestic abuse, women and children, and I actually observed an art therapist working there. And what she did was really powerful to me. Um, I remember the first experience that I observed, she created a safe place with the kids and had them draw what their safe place was. And it was very interesting because it wasn't really what you would expect. A lot of images of, you know, walls and barbed wire fences and things like that came up. So Imagery from, that is to, to block some someone from coming in, which yeah, you, you might expect. For protection or for safety. Mm-hmm. So um, after seeing that, I kind of put it together that I wanted to use my art in a way that would help others and my understanding of art in a way that would help others. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Amanda Roachwhite is a Denver therapist and president of the Art Therapy Association of Colorado. Karen Pence, the nation's second lady, has chosen art therapy as her cause. President Donald Trump is dismantling former President Obama's climate change legacy. Trump issued a sweeping directive Tuesday that seeks to wipe out the clean power plan, which limits emissions on coal-fired power plants. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood was just in the North Fork Valley of Colorado reporting on coal country, and she spoke with my colleague Joanne Allen. Grace, the president is delivering on his campaign promise to coal country. Remind us what is at stake in Colorado. Trump has said that he wants to reopen shuttered coal mines and put miners back to work. And, you know, if you remember, the coal industry really became this flashpoint during the 2016 election. Hillary Clinton talked about bringing renewable energy into coal country to create jobs. Trump was less focused on the transition and more on just simply bringing the coal jobs back. And he really sees the clean power plan as a major barrier there. 
What do the numbers tell us about Colorado's coal country and the reality in Delta County where you were last week? They're pretty bleak. In Colorado, coal production decreased by 40 percent last year. And in Delta County, they their jobs have gone from about 1,200 in the coal industry to a little over 200 at the one remaining mine there, which is West Elk Mine. To a certain extent, Colorado has really already started shifting away from coal. They did that in 2010 with a law called the Clean Air, Clean Jobs Act. And it really kick-started converting coal-fired power plants to using natural gas. What about the people? What's the reaction from Colorado Coal Country to this executive order? I met with Kathy Welt. She's worked in the industry for 29 years and is an environmental engineer at West Elk Mine. She says that the changes provide some degree of economic certainty. But, you know, here's one of the surprising things. She really wasn't as enthusiastic as I thought she would be. Here's what she had to say. We're very hopeful, but... Hey, we're we're the last mine standing, and that's reality. What's happened to many of my uh, friends and family around here? Layoffs and mine closures have hit this area hard. You know, there's a little bit of good news. West Elk has hired about 20 additional workers, and they did that in late 2016. And the mine is really now looking at moving forward to the next step of applying for an expansion after years of lawsuits and permit reviews there. Well, Grace, as you mentioned, West Elk has been in a tug of war with environmental groups for years over expansion plans. What does Trump's executive order mean for mine expansion in Colorado since it takes effect immediately? Another key part of this executive order is that Trump is rescinding the moratorium on new federal coal leases. That's actually not going to have that big of an effect because natural gas is so much cheaper than coal. But, you know, we're also seeing environmental groups that are gearing up for a fight. I spoke with Shannon Hughes. She's with Wild Earth Guardians, an environmental group that's really challenged West Elk's efforts to build roads and expand the mine. It's been a bad idea to do this. It's still a bad idea. We are going to fight like hell. Um, And we're not just disappointed in this. We're outraged and we are going to do something about it. So you can really hear that Trump's executive order is strengthening the initiatives and resolve of environmental groups like Wild Earth Guardians. What is the biggest impact the executive order will have in Colorado? Trump's order is going to review other Obama-era executive orders. For example, one is a federal rule that reduces methane emissions from oil and gas equipment. I think the biggest impact to Colorado is that it signals an administration that's friendly to industry. But, you know, it's interesting. There's really a feeling that the industry never will be what it was when you go to the North Fork Valley. Here's Charles Stewart. He's the mayor of Paonia. You know, we've always had basically an economy that was based not only upon coal mining, but also agriculture, outdoor recreation. They've always been very much part of the uh, landscape around here. And other areas are going to have to find ways to pick up the slack. The area is also looking at adding more solar as a way to revive the economy. Another program they're looking at is a way to retrain coal workers to serve the growing solar industry. That's very much a work in progress, but, you know, it's one way that they may be able to diversify their economy. That is CPR's energy and environment reporter Grace Hood speaking with my colleague Joanne Allen. They discussed President Donald Trump's new executive order on the Clean Power Plan. (laughs) 
Iceland has managed to reduce its drug and alcohol consumption, and a Denver man gets some of the credit. Twenty years ago, teens in Iceland were some of the heaviest substance users in Europe. That is no longer the case. Psychologist Harvey Milkman of Metro State is also a visiting professor at the University of Reykjavik, and he brought the idea that replacing artificial highs with natural highs before addiction begins could change a society. He spoke with my colleague Robin Young of NPR's Here and Now. Professor Milkman, welcome, or should I say welcoming? <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Before we start talking about Iceland, briefly tell us what it was you realized when you were researching people back in the 70s who were using, that was the first wave of heroin and amphetamine abuse. We found that, sure enough, they did have different personality styles, that the heroin users were characterized by passive withdrawal in terms of their style of coping with stress, and the amphetamine users were opposite. Uh, They were characterized by active confrontation, so they were active, extroverted people who were playing all-night music, they were doing construction work, and when they were under stress, they wanted to amp up their level of active confrontation with their environment. Well, so you found, okay, two different ways that people were using drugs to deal with stress. As you said, heroin users just wanted to get away from it, numbing it, amphetamine users, you know, confronting it. But then you had the, the, the aha moment was when you realized, wait, wait, it's not about the drugs. Of course, that was the big problem. It's about the way they coped with stress. That's what they were abusing. That's right. You know, we had that aha moment that it was the the style of coping that they were becoming addicted to. And so that led me to a conversation with a very renowned brain scientist, Stanley Sunderworth. And he said almost immediately, of course, they're getting addicted to changes in their brain chemistry. And then Mm -hmm. we knew we were on to something. This idea that it's how you were feeling that you were then dealing with with the drugs and your thinking was, well, let's, why don't we see if we can change how they're feeling before they get to the drugs? And so your thinking translated into what with kids? Well, we knew that the brain was a giant pharmaceutical factory that manufactured its own mind-altering chemicals. And if people are getting addicted to self-induced changes in brain chemistry that could be translated into drugs or behaviors, why not start a natural highs movement where they could become influence to change their brain chemistry in positive ways that would benefit themselves and the society. And so in 1992, a legendary African-American dance choreographer, Cleo Parker Robinson, and I were awarded $1.2 million to start a natural highs program for at-risk youth. And we gave them music and art and dance and whatever they really wanted to learn in the area of um, healthy recreational activities. And then we also gave them a mindfulness program so that they could learn the skills to manage their own thinking. And we were tremendously successful with that. And that's when the conversations really started with Iceland about offering people healthy ways to change their brain chemistry. Part of me is saying, well, this makes so much sense. You know, this (laughs) is what kids used to have in school. There were, you know, there are tons of after-school activities. Now you take this to Mm -hmm. Iceland. How bad was it in Iceland? Well, it was really a frightening scene on a Friday night. There were hordes of drunk teenagers, and they were in-your-face drunk and sometimes shouting obscenities and and, um, rowdy, and then you really didn't want to be on the streets. So uh, people were really uh, becoming concerned in Iceland about what was happening to their teenage population. You helped come up with a program called Youth in Iceland, and it, it covers every area of life. It starts with questionnaires to every school in Iceland, you know, anonymous but then, talk about the, the pillars of the program. Parents got involved, families got involved. What happened? 
policymakers, researchers, practitioners, people who work with kids, uh, school teachers, coaches, uh, nurses, doctors, and even corporations. So they all got together and decided we're going to have this as a kind of a um, collaborative effort to help kids. So it's important to realize that working with the surveys, they discovered that the things that really stood out in terms of what was correlated with high drug abuse were how strong were the relationships with the family, how much time was the family spending with the kids, what were what kind of peer groups were the kids hanging around with, and, and really important was the available recreational activities. So after the, getting the results of the survey, as you said, all aspects of uh, Icelandic life get involved. Laws are changed. It's illegal to buy tobacco under 18 or alcohol under 20. Uh, advertising for both were banned. Laws were passed prohibiting kids uh, 13 to 16 from being outside after 10 p.m. in winter or midnight in summer. But I love this piece. Parents have to sign all sorts of pledges. They have to go to talks on uh, spending time with kids, and they're told it's not quality time. It's quantity time. Explain that. You can't have a once a month taking the kids to the movies and call it good. So it has to be quality and quantity of time. So um, how much time are you spending with your kid every day and uh, during the week? And then people were able to re- get that message. And the whole country got the idea that it really is important to spend time with your kids. And so from 1997 to 2012 – the time spent with ki- with parents doubled for 15 to 16 year old kids, and and then they had a corresponding reduction in substance abuse and other problem behaviors. Wow, it's just incredible. Pa- parents had to sign pledges that they wouldn't allow their kids to have unsupervised parties. They wouldn't buy alcohol for minors. They'd keep an eye on the well being of other children, and parents will recognize this, so that when your kid says everybody else can. You don't have to just say, I don't care about everybody else. You can say, no, they're not. <laughs> you know, we've all right. signed this pledge. And I think another part of it, Robin, is the leisure card. Every family knows that the government is providing them with a voucher to give their kids art, music, dance. So there's a, basically a budget of about $250 per family, per kid. Ping pong, badminton, uh, soccer, gymnastics, all the kind of athletic activities you can imagine. But in addition, uh, following the lead of that Cleo Parker Robinson and I developed the, the, mu- the music, the art, the dance. Not every kid wants to do sports, and they can self-select, which is really con- connected to their abilities and their passions and so on. You know, again, this makes so much sense. You know, if you're in a town where, um, you know, just a handful of kids make the basketball team and everybody else just becomes feral, you know, in the afternoon right. with nothing to do, but what about cost? So it's really a combination of government support and corporate support and tax support. And uh, look, $250 a year is a very small uh, price compared to the uh, what it costs to when a kid becomes adjudicated and ha- requires yeah. probation or incarceration or something like that. It's a, it's a minor uh, expense. But it's not just uh, the cost of joining. The, it's, it's hiring all the people who run programs. I mean, you know, somebody in America might look at this and say, oh, that's just more government interference in our lives. Right. Um, uh, and, and by the way, you're talking about millions of people here as opposed to just, you know, thousands in Iceland. Do you think it's transferable? Well, you're right. I mean, the ratio is about 1,000 to 1. So to every one person in Iceland, there's 1,000 people in the United States. But we can think about different municipalities for sure in the United States that can replicate the Icelandic model. I mean, we have 17 different countries in Europe that are doing it across 35 different municipalities. We have a Youth in Europe project. Certainly, there would be, a, uh, I think, a beneficial effect. A special sort of aspect of solving these problems is to 
recognize community by community what the problems are, and then tackle them in terms of the resources that the community has, Mm -hmm. let them solve some of their own problems through their own agency. And in Iceland, we we talked about the phenomenal results. I mean, repeat those. Really, was it just, is it gone from in-your-face drunk kids to deserted streets? Well, it really did. I mean, it went from drunk in the past 30 days, uh, 42% of the uh, 16-year-olds were doing that and went down to 7%. And in terms of daily smoking, it went from 23% to 3%. In terms of using cannabis in the past year, it went from 17% to 5%. So the results are remarkable. They're astounding. And we're seeing it in Europe, and we should be having elements of it deployed throughout the United States as well. I can think of families that would just give anything to have this, to give their kids a natural high before they even think of a pharmaceutical high. Harvey, thank you. Thank you. Harvey Milkman, professor of psychology at Metropolitan University of Denver. He's also a visiting professor at the University of Reykjavik, speaking there with Here and Now's Robin Young. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Seventy-five years ago today, the order came down that people of Japanese descent were prohibited from leaving the Pacific coast voluntarily. If they left, it was forcibly to an internment camp, this country's reaction to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific coast state. And these prison camps were located around the West and Midwest, After World War II, many of those who were interned came to Denver. Lane Hirabayashi is a professor of Asian American Studies at UCLA, and he spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis about Colorado's post-war Japanese community. Lane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andrea. What prompted the Japanese community to settle in Colorado and specifically Denver once they were released from the camps? Well, you know, I'd point out that they were here really from the the turn of the last century, although not very many. And as the uh, ability to leave camp came up, people found Denver a very suitable place to hop out of camp and start reentering society and trying to readjust to life on the outside. They were unable to go back to their West Coast homes. So Seattle, uh, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., San Diego were all under the military zone restrictions until the actual end of the war in 1945. But if people could pass uh, security clearances and they were willing to sign an oath, uh, you know, that stated they would be loyal Americans and they wouldn't congregate with other people of Japanese ancestry, they could gain work release. Uh, Young men and women could gain release if a college would accept them so they could continue their undergraduate studies. Uh, But essentially, it was a labor force thing. And uh, Denver was very attractive to a lot of people, whether they were leaving from the northern camp of Hart Mountain in Wyoming, uh, the southern camps like uh, Poston, Arizona, or Gila River, uh, the WRA camp there, um, saw Denver as a desirable place because there was a small Japanese-American community formation downtown. 
And it was kind of betwixt and between so that when the war wound down, they felt like, oh, they could jump back to California if that was desirable, or they could move into the Midwest. And of course, there was a camp in Colorado called Amache. That too. Describe the scene in Denver's post-war Japanese community. What was it like? Well, um, from the pictures I've seen and the interviews I've done, we're talking essentially about, uh, uh, you know, it was a segregated area. Uh, I, I think it's accurate to call it the Larimer Corridor because it's there on uh, Larimer Street, you know, around uh, 28th, maybe between 28th and 13th or so. That was uh, where uh, folks of Japanese ancestry were allowed to rent, uh, set up small businesses and so forth because this was before the uh, day of of, uh, fair housing, free housing. So that was kind of the the area that was designated for people of Japanese ancestry. And how big was the Japanese community uh, in the area? Well, there's no doubt that the war and the mass removal, incarceration, and then, then release vastly increased the the population because we're talking about maybe 350, 370 uh, Japanese Americans in the city of Denver. But by the end of the war, we're talking about over 5,000 people. That's just Mm. in Denver. Mm. And the same kind of phenomena in the rural hinterlands. Uh, you know, maybe you had two, three thousand in rural Colorado, but by 1945, uh, I would guesstimate it to be somewhere around six or seven thousand people. Now, the war period is a period of great transition, so it's very hard to to guesstimate, but but I, w- I would say that, that maybe by uh, 45 or so, we're talking about 12,000 people, not all of whom stayed, but I mean a vast increase in, in, in the population. Lane, there was a lot of hostility toward Japanese Americans who came to Denver. Talk about that. Well, you know, you have to remember that uh, FDR signs Executive Order 9066, that maybe close to two-thirds of the uh, folks of Japanese descent were U.S. citizens. And irrespective of that fact, their constitutional and civil rights were ignored and they were subject to removal en masse and then incarceration without the benefit of a trial by a jury of their peers. So I think in the minds of the larger public, this was an uh, an enemy presence, uh, a fifth column presence uh, in our midst. And um, release from camp, I don't think, did anything to relieve those kinds of suspicions and fears. Right. So I feel a lot of sympathy toward those people that were coming out into a place like Denver, trying to put their best foot forward, because I think a lot of people assumed that there had been sabotage, espionage, you know, that they were suspicious en masse, when the fact is that by the end of the war, not one person of Japanese ancestry was successfully convicted of sabotage or espionage, nada. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Japanese Americans coming into a place like Denver did try to put their best foot forward, but I think that they were apprehensive. I think that there was a lot of uncertainty. And the reports I've heard are, are mixed. Some uh, Denverites were very hospitable and tried to give uh, folks a chance. Uh, I think in many cases, though, that lingering suspicion of, oh, you must have been guilty of something because the president and the federal branch imprisoned you 
Mm-hmm. And and I think that was difficult to overcome. Denver, I might add, was difficult in terms of there was a housing shortage. Uh, it was difficult for people to find jobs. It was tough. Your uncle was one of only a few Japanese-American citizens who defied orders to go to the internment camps. He was jailed and fought his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. He lost that case. Mm -hmm. But at the time, he was denounced by other Mm Japanese-Americans. Why? Well, I I, I think it's one of those phenomena that when you're a member of an accused, and in this case, falsely accused group, there is a segment that's willing to bend over backwards. Words uh, that's going to become 110 percent American in ef- in an effort to try and demonstrate their patriotism and their loyalty. So at the time, unfortunately, some of the community organizations uh, denounced people like my uncle that tried to resist. Uh, even my uncle believed in the U.S. Constitution. He said, I'm not going to do this because this is against the principles uh, of the Constitution. It was also against his religious and moral principles. But some people uh, felt he was a boat rocker and didn't support him. Do you think there are any parallels between this chapter in World War II history and the current climate for Muslims in the U.S.? It's really saddening. I think in the last couple of months, the the uh, policy uh, balloons and movements we've seen, uh, a registry, um, you know, the, the notion that immigration is banned from certain countries, uh, raids, detention. These are all part and parcel of what led up to or what was entailed uh, uh, in the execution of Executive Order 9066. So from a Japanese-American perspective, recent developments are very distressing. What is the 75th anniversary of the executive order that led to the internment of people of Japanese ancestry mean to you? We always want to bring to the public's attention, educationally speaking, that this took place, this affected over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, and it was a fiasco in terms of, again, not one person was successfully convicted of sabotage or espionage, and all this time, money, and and energy went into, uh, I think, a misconceived public policy. I think what we're thinking about these days is now others— uh, are being subject to many of the same fears and suspicions. And we have to remember that prejudice, that, uh, you know, the lack of political leadership and a war crisis leads to policies that later on, I think many of us regret. Lane, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. That is Lane Hirabayashi, professor of Asian American studies at UCLA. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis about Japanese internment camp prisoners settling in Colorado after World War II. Scientist Diana Wall is obsessed with worms and other invertebrates that live in the soil. She's an ecologist at Colorado State University and has studied these species in Antarctica for decades. A valley there is actually named for her. We spoke in 2014 when she was inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. She'll take part in an event next week in Fort Collins called Inspiring Conversations with Great Women. Diana Wall, welcome to the program. Thank you. I think of Antarctica as a pretty bleak place. 
It's actually a desert, which came as a surprise to me. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, and yet you say there's a whole kitchen sink of microscopic species underground. There is a kitchen sink. I mean, it's it's quite amazing to just walk into a landscape that's very much like Mars and see nothing living, no green. I mean, you'd look, even as you walk along, you'd expect a mosquito or something. But no, everything's hidden. And when you look more closely, yeah. I suppose sometimes under a microscope, what is it that you see beneath Antarctica that has captured your imagination for low these many years? Well, when I went down there in 89, 1989, I went down the first time, and there had been a paper published in Science about four or five years before that said that the area where I was going was sterile, and so it was being used by NASA to study Mars. So I thought, well, maybe they haven't really looked hard enough. And so my they, they truly believe this to be a dead landscape. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, so when I went down uh, with my colleague, we took a soil sample and we brought it back to the lab and we mixed it with water and we poured it through screens and they're caught on the screens and under a microscope we could see these tiny round worms that are nematodes. Those are the highest invertebrate in those soils. The highest invertebrates. So there's, they, so there's no bugs. There's no beetles. There's no earthworms. So this is about as big as soil creatures get. In That's Antarctica, right. Is That's microscopic. Right. And this was a revelation, the idea that this was a living landscape. And I think so, yes. And, and that these animals, this biodiversity below our feet, this hidden biodiversity you have to have a microscope for, uh, has a place in a landscape like that. It was amazing. How do they survive? I mean, I was just blown away by it. And for 25 years now, you've been trying to answer all the questions that were raised in that first visit. What, what, what role do they play? Well, it's kind of exciting. If we went out and took a, a soil sample right here and did the same kind of analysis, you know, pulled everything out of the soil, you'd just have your desk covered with all sorts of microinvertebrates and beetles and earthworms and that sort of thing. You go there and you pull out a soil sample and it'll have one species in there that feeds on bacteria, so it helps to decay carbon. But what I can see in Antarctica, which is so cool in these soils, is you can actually see just one species. And you get to find out what it does and how it responds to climate change and how, how it, what its range is. We can't tell that very easily here because there's so many organisms in the soil. There's much less biodiversity, it sounds like, in the soil in Antarctica, which makes it quite vulnerable, I would think. That to, is a very good point. To climate and change. I think it is. It is more vulnerable. And I think that when we see, and we've had some warming events since 2000 that have uh, caused the permafrost. We've seen f kind of floods going across the landscape. And you've got to realize this is like Mars because there's areas, just vast areas of just nothing but soil, desert soil. And some of the canyons look like the Grand Canyon, not not as big. Huh. But you see this, and what am I seeing? I'm seeing that they have a range just like a giraffe has a range or a lion <laughs> has a range. They just, you know, you don't see poodles running around in the desert of, of the Serengeti. We also see that these species are very separate and have ranges, and that'll make them vulnerable to climate change. The range of microscopic worms. Paint us a picture of your journeys there. You land where, you <laughs> stay where, and how long are you there? We fly uh, to Christchurch, New Zealand, oh. and from there we take a military aircraft. It's about an eight-hour flight to Antarctica, to, to 
Uh, one of the U.S. bases is called McMurdo Station. Right. This is the largest one. And so we land on an ice runway. Just The plane has skis on the bottom of the plane. And we land on that runway and all pile off. And we live for a while in McMurdo Station. There are dormitories there. You often bring students, grad students. I bring students, postdocs. Yeah, we have a variable team every year. And there are actually four different members from different universities on the soils team. How long are you there? Usually four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. Yeah. And do you see other creatures? You must see large, like fauna, megafauna. Everybody wants me to say I see penguins. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. And sometimes you don't. Yeah, because they're definitely not in the dry valleys in these this desert area. And you're doing what? You're, you're straying far from the station and digging into the earth? What does a day look like in Antarctica? Well, we fly by helicopter about 40 miles across ice to a valley that is... Uh, striking. It's about three. It's a very narrow valley, about 3,000 feet tall on either side. And we land, the helicopter leaves, we get out our gear that we've brought with us, and we take plastic bags and we start sampling in our experiments. We've set up experiments that are like little warming chambers on the soil, and they've been sitting there just clear. Think of them as greenhouses sitting on the soil. Okay. And they've been warming the soil during the summer season for now about 15 to 20 years. And we sample that, count, take the the soil sample back, pull the nematodes out of it by washing, as I described, and then count them under a microscope. And we can count, we can count the adults, the males, the females, the juveniles. Uh, We count living and dead. And so that way we can track the population, just like you track the population of Denver, And we can do that over a period of years and see how the warming has affected them. And how has the warming of the Uh, planet affected them? It's affecting them. It's quite amazing. Uh, It's it's been only since 2000, so we haven't got a lot of data points. But since 2000, the warming has started to decrease the animals. We're seeing a decrease in the population. You mentioned this valley you take a helicopter to. Is this, perchance, the valley that is named for you? No, no. Okay. Tell us about this. <laughs> but I would. You, you, I you, would you... take a helicopter to that one, yes. Okay. And what what is this valley that carries your name? This valley is really, uh, if it melts down all over Antarctica, it'll be good, nice real, real estate because it's very high. It's a high valley. And sitting on a a large canyon on the edge of a large canyon, and it it is uh, really striking, and it's red rocks. So you, I think often of red rocks here when yeah. I see it, but it is uh, not exactly. It's very cold, and so there's there's less animals in the soil than we see in the valleys that I work in. And how did it come to be that it was named for you? Boy, it was it was a shock to me. I didn't find out until two years after it happened. So <laughs> my my colleague read it on the web and said. Wow, did you know you have a valley named after you? And so it's a, a, I think it's a U.S. geological and then an Antarctic treaty type of a designation. They have to all approve it. Right. It's a multinational exactly. effort. Yes, yes. Do you miss it when you're away from it? I think about it a lot. I like the, the aloneness. I don't want to be down there in the winter because I wouldn't survive. But, um, yeah, I think about it a lot, and I, it it occupies our minds, all of us to work together, all my colleagues, there's 12 of us, and we think constantly about how is this ecosystem changing, what will happen with warming, what will happen to the animals there, will it become green? Uh, That's interesting. Will it go from desert to something more verdant? Yes, absolutely. Which I suppose to us sounds like a rosy positive change, Mm -hmm. but for nature that may not be so. 
No, I, I think it will be covered with water, I mean, this particular valley. In fact, right now, the lake levels, we have frozen lakes in these valleys, and the lake levels are rising up around the soils, and we've had to move our camps higher on the hills. That is to say the melting ice the is melting creating ice, water yeah. on land. Your biography, Diana Wall, again, ecologist at Colorado State University, it mentions that your enthusiasm for science has helped you overcome the obstacles of working in a male-dominated field. What are those obstacles? I think there are a lot of them in, in the past in, in science. Um, science has been a male-dominated field for a long for a lot of reasons. I think women weren't allowed to go to school you know, until we got the ability to go to college. Uh, we couldn't go into scientific fields. And I think they're just subtle things about when people think of names. If there's a, a group of males, they may think of, oh, well, here's a lot of members that could be on my committee, and they'll name male names. And if you ask women, I think women think of women names that could go on committees. So frequently in the scientific areas, you still walk into a committee, and I'll be the only woman there. Mm. And I'll wonder... How was that committee set up? What kind of outreach was there? Yeah. Uh, why don't you leave us with this? You, you take students, as we mentioned, to Antarctica. Tell us about a mystery that there is still to unlock there. Oh, I think right now how the food webs will change. So the, the soils have food webs in the wet areas. and how food, is Food webs? Yeah. So it's like a, a, in the ocean, a shark eats. Yeah. It's the predator. The hierarchy. It, the higher, exactly. And it comes on down to the small things, and they're eating smaller and smaller things. And so these species, these nematodes that are in the soil, what will happen as this area warms? What will they eat? What will they eat? Perhaps what what will, eat how will they survive with so much more water? Hmm. And their soil habitat's going to change. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Colorado State University ecologist Diana Wall. We spoke in 2014 when she was inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Next week in Fort Collins, she'll take part in an event called Inspiring Conversations with Great Women. Finally today, Denver singer-songwriter Patrick Detlefs has a new album. It's his second since 2009 when he won Swallow Hill's Young Songwriters Contest. This new record, Beauty in the Unknown, is really personal, exploring themes of self-doubt and letting go. This is the track, I Was Your Age. All the miles are in this tireless. I can see the finish and they're calling my name. Look, all that's passing is coming. You can try and catch it, but can you hold me on? When I was older, I wish I knew it's a road and it just keeps running. It won't always go. But you're sure to find beauty in the unknown Cause if every change there's not much loss You can stay with the pain or carry on When I was your age I thought I knew every answer I'm such a fool It don't
Denver singer-songwriter Patrick Detlefs. His new record is Beauty in the Unknown, and we've been hearing I Was Your Age. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.